If you're looking to help the world and buy a home at the exact same time, then you have to contact Climate Change Realty. Visit ccrealty.org to find your real estate agent anywhere in the USA and donate thousands of dollars to your favorite environmental nonprofits absolutely for free. Welcome to the podcast. Liz, really nice to meet you. Thank you so much for taking some time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Great to meet you too, Ethan. Yeah, you're absolutely very welcome. I'm looking forward to the conversation coming from Kenya, which is really cool. And you know, we always love to get the podcast started with some background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Great. Um, yeah, so um, my name is Liz. I actually originally come from the Great Lakes region of Indiana, so like Northwest Indiana. I uh, grew up on the shores of Lake Michigan, right outside Chicago. And uh, as an undergrad, I went to Northwestern and studied international studies. And I started to become really interested in, you know, living and being in a place where where the UN was working. And so I applied to graduate school in Geneva, Switzerland, after um, leaving when, you know, when I was ready to graduate from Chicago and uh, got accepted. And that's where my career started at the UN. I um, started working as an intern in Geneva at the UN. And then uh, later on, I worked for different organizations in Geneva, in Bonn, Germany. Then I moved to New York for a few years during the STG period, which was really, really fun. And then I, I moved to Kenya uh, six years ago. And it's been, uh, it's been a wonderful journey so far. Love it. So being from Indiana, that's kind of like the heart of America. What what drew you to be connected to like the global community, I suppose I would put it? What, where did that interest yeah. come from? It's, it's a really good question. Not many people in my hometown of Valparaiso were fans of the UN or even heard of the UN. So I didn't, I didn't really have many, <laughs> like many, you know, um, teachers or courses that were kind of pushing me in that direction. But I did, I was really lucky to have parents who loved to travel. And so we had the opportunity to start to travel. And my, my mom was really keen on us learning foreign languages. So mm -hmm. when we were like 10, my brother and I were sitting in German class after school, learning to bake cookies and learning German words. And my sister learned French and now my sister's living in France and married to a Frenchman and <laughs> I married a German and, <laughs> and uh, ended up living in Germany. And my, my brother is living in California and married a British, uh, a British girl. So I think that there's something to be said about the way our parents brought us up to, okay. to, to travel, love the world and be open to that. Yeah, that's great. Um, can you give a, a brief, brief history of the UN and why it exists? Sure. So the UN actually, uh, the first attempt at something like a UN was was something called the League of League Nations. Of Nations. Yeah. yeah. And um, that League of Nations failed kind of miserably. It really failed to prevent World War One, which is what it was trying to do. Um, and it didn't really have uh, it didn't really have teeth. It didn't have um, any any power to sanction its members. It didn't have the United States as a member at all, although it was an idea of Woodrow Wilson's. So um, the League of Nations had the right idea, the idea kind of of a world parliament, and it failed. And obviously, after, um, after World War II, um, the, the you know, countries got together at, at this famous conference called Bretton Woods, and they said, you know, this can't happen again. So World War I and II, many people kind of consider them one big war. It's like a kind of a war that lasted really 20 or 30 years instead of two separate ones. But it was so destructive and it was so damaging and it was so, um, you know, the loss of human life was so immense that um, countries finally said, we can't let this happen again. So the UN was primarily created right after World War II in order to um, to create peace and to prevent war. That's its first and most and most important objective. And it's, it's literally the only body in the world where every single country has an equal vote in its, in its bodies. And so you'll see, you know, even at the height of the Cold War, you'll see Cuba sitting next to the United States, sitting next to Russia or the Soviet Union, and they do pass laws and make decisions um, and, and they're able to, to have that equal voice. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. It still exists and still works quite well in many ways. Um, over, the, over these decades, the, the, the mandate of the UN has grown as countries give it more and more to do. Um, so it, it, we do a lot of peacekeeping around the world. We protect human rights. But in 1972, exactly 50 years ago, 
um, at this uh, famous environmental conference in Stockholm, the world decided that um, the environment was a, an issue of global concern. Um, and that's when they created the UN Environment Program. So it's one of the newer bodies of the UN in that sense. It's only 50 years old. Um, but basically, it was decided that environment is, is an issue that's as important as war or other issues um, for, for countries to come together and, 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 um, and solve those problems. Well, I'm on board with that. And that explains how your interest in international relations got you into working on the environment, which was a question I was thinking about asking. So I guess I'd like to, to know, what did you learn from, near, I guess, a decade working on development projects surrounding water? And then what, what, is, what, what is what you've learned about that uh, made you, I guess, suppose you, I'm not, you don't live in the U.S. at the moment, but how does that change your perspective on the way we use water here in the U.S.? Because that's something I'm really interested in. I think it's very inefficient the way we use water here. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd love to get your perspective on that. Yeah, it's a great one. And I, I mean, I came, you know, maybe because I grew up next to, you know, literally the world's largest store of fresh water in the world, which is the Great Lakes region. Um, and so I, I grew up literally surrounded by fresh water. Um and, and I wasn't intending to go into the environment at all, to be honest. Like I was thinking I would go kind of a more really typical development track. I was interested in, in conflict resolution. I was interested in the rights of minorities. But halfway through my master's studies in Geneva, I was approached by a group of people that um, they were talking about needing development assistance. But really, what I what I what I realized is that the the real problems they had were actually environmental, and that group was the Navajo Nation in um, the Four Corners region of the United States. They reached out to to the position that I was in as an intern while I was studying, and they said, you know, you know, we have these issues too. We've got issues with our rights to education. We've got issues with our rights to housing and the right to um, to proper work, right? Um, but in the end, it actually all kind of comes down to environmental issues, and that really out in the West, it comes down a lot to water issues. And so that's what really piqued my interest in the understanding that all of the developmental rights we talk about are actually underpinned or can be undermined by the environment. And I realized that the United States really wasn't thinking in that direction at that time. This was 20 years ago. Um, and so what, what really drew me to the water issue is that it is so, um, it's so valuable for everything we do, like literally, there's, there's, there's not a day that goes by that we don't use fresh water in some way. We need to drink it to live. It's embedded in our food. So, you know, the food we grow takes most of the world's water supplies. And so we're actually eating water every day with what we choose to eat. But it also, um, you know, it makes our industry go. It's essential for every kind of energy that we use. Um, and so water is so present and so essential, and yet it's literally invisible in all of these um, processes. And that's often what makes us undervalue it or not understand it. And when we don't value something, we don't we we don't we don't use it efficiently. So something that's not properly valued tends to be overused and not used efficiently. And that happens with water. It's definitely this case in the United States. There are, there are um, great examples. I mean, California is the one that I have to mention because it is an extremely water scarce part of the country. And yet it is also an agricultural giant. You know, it's, it's got amazing industry. It's got a very strong economy. So, so California has been a, a model example of, of um, how to use water pretty well, how to deal with drought quite well. Um, through through water efficiency measures, through reusing water, through recycling water. Um, uh, so I think California is kind of a bit of a front runner personally, but um, it hasn't caught on in a lot of other places in the United States or in or in other rich countries. Uh, that's uh, it doesn't really become important until it starts to run out. <laughs> and then people right. are like, it's actually Benjamin Franklin who's accredited with saying that when the well is dry, you'll know the value of water. Um, and so that, you know, as we get drier, as we as we deal with more um, drought conditions, people are starting to realize, OK, we need to be a lot more efficient with how we use it. Yeah, I think we just take it for granted as as this given thing. I don't know about other folks, but some I, I have a really special feeling when I go next to a stream 
and I just look at it. Like I've always been just enthralled with, 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 with water for some reason. I love the ocean as well, but particularly I, I just feel really good when I'm by a stream and getting into all these environmental conversations. Now, when I, when I wake up in the morning and I turn on the sink, I don't think it's just like, oh, just another day. Like I really pay attention and I'm like, wow, like this gift of life is coming out. Like I'm so lucky to have it. Um, what what exactly is California doing that is, that makes it so so admirable or what's so efficient about their systems? Because I think like 60% or more of the food that we, we grow in the US is grown in California. No, that, that can't be right. A, a large percentage of food is yeah. grown in California. So how do they- how I do don't they know the statistics, that? but I know that it's it's a major breadbasket for the United States. So I, I um, California, so of the freshwater, so first of all, I should say that- <laughs> Water or fresh water is an amazing resource. I think, you know, we do feel emotionally connected to it. It's literally the source of life. Like when, 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 when like when spaceships and astronauts go out in space and look at other planets and they look for life, what they look for is the presence of water. You know, that's, that's what, that's the marker that they look for to see if this planet can support life. And so, you know, the, the reason that we, live on planet earth and it's such an amazing home is because of its freshwater but the freshwater is an extremely small part of what you see only three percent of all the water on earth is fresh 97 percent of all of our water is is salty and out of that fresh water out of that three percent 97 percent or almost 99 percent of it is actually locked away in like permanent snow or ice or very deep underground aquifers. So it's like less than 1% of that 3% of all water on earth is what you see in those lakes and rivers and wetlands and that we actually use to drink and that we can see it on the surface. So it's an extremely precious resource and I think it's important that we remember that. Um, I think that uh, California is doing a few things. So so the water that we use on earth, all of all that precious uh, resource, Almost 70% of, of the water that we use, the easily accessible surface water that I was just talking about, 70% in the world is used for agriculture. And, and about 20% is used for industry in some way. Um, and 10% is used for human use, like what you use in a household or for drinking. So um, the biggest way to tackle any uh, water issue is through agriculture. So J- California has got a good example of using more efficient um, agriculture water water um, methods when, within its agriculture, like um, drip irrigation. So where you basically, you have kind of a little hose with holes in it and, and, the, and the water comes out in, in drips directly on the line of seeds or the seedlings, directly where and when it's needed and how much is needed instead of a giant sprinkler that's spreading more than you need or irrigation ditches that flood, right? A whole field that, that wastes tons of water. But the strip irrigation is one is one thing that California is amazing at. Mm-hmm. Um, California has also been quite good at because energy uses so much water. And California has been quite good at solar powered solar energy and solar powered desal, like desalination plants, which are you know helping to turn salt water into fresh water. Um, and so California has got some great examples of, of, of saving water in that way. Um, reusing water. So making sure that water that comes out of a household, we call that gray water, not if it's flushed from your toilet, but if it's coming from like your kitchen sink, that's gray water. And so that to, to reuse that and clean that and put that back into um, uh, households is, is very efficient. Um, Same, same as having standards for, you know, um, for toilets or showers that are, that are low water usage. So those are all any of that. We hardly have any yeah. gray water in the U.S. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 such an easy thing to do. Many many countries are are doing that, and and the U.S. is is um, yeah, it's behind the times. I don't know why, because there's lots and lots really. There's lots of money to be made in re- retrofitting houses or selling that kind of technology. Yeah, right. So I'm surprised that I mean, there's a huge business interest there. So there's, uh, it should be a lot more of it. Yeah, I think it has to do with investing in infrastructure to allow that to happen. And I think it's on an individual level, house house per house. So things are kind of already set up. And 
as a realtor, trust me, I've dealt with the the sewer line issues. So it, it can be really expensive for people to fix those. Um, yeah, something I'd like to like look into in the future would perhaps be how water is is priced, and it's because it's crazy now. We don't have a price on carbon, which is you know heating up the planet to death. It'd uh, be interesting to see how we go about pricing water. But um, would you mind sharing a bit about the UN Environmental Program's uh, global freshwater strategy before we get into uh, GAN? Sure. Um, happy to. So um, UNEP has got a really cool new um, yeah, a new strategy that member states have given to us. Uh, and we have something like, you've probably heard of the General Assembly that meets in New York. That's the only part of the UN um, that where all countries meet together, all 193 member states and observers, they meet and they make decisions at an equal level. That's the General Assembly in New York. The only other place that does that is the UN's Environment Assembly. Um, that's the only other global body of the UN, and it meets here in Nairobi uh, every two years. And that Environment Assembly is where all the countries come together and tell us what they want our marching orders to be for the next four years. So they've given us this really cool new strategy, a medium-term strategy for us. And it, it's based on the idea that the world is facing three interlinked Crises. So there's a triple planetary crisis, and it's it's a nature and biodiversity crisis, it's a pollution crisis, and it's um, the climate crisis. And those three pillars are interlinked with each other. The strategy that we have to deal with freshwater um, is intersects across that strategy. So basically, what we've done with the freshwater strategy is show how those three crises are impacting and often disproportionately impacting freshwater bodies, and I can say a little bit about that. Um, but also the really important and I think really cool message is that when you protect and restore and, and manage freshwater well, they actually also help fight against all three of those crises. So, for example, freshwater bodies, including wetlands, have lost more of their surface area than a lot of our other ecosystems. So we think a lot about forests being lost, but the, the one type of ecosystem where we've lost the most over the past 50 years is actually our, our wetlands. We've lost seven, we've 70, 70% of them have been lost. And that's because often swamps and wetlands are the first things to be drained when you're trying to build infrastructure or develop a, a country. So if you want to build roads or hospitals or houses, you often um, you know, you, you dam that river, you, you drain that wetland, you put, you know, you put roads down, you might, you might um, cut off a river from its floodplain, right? So, so we actually, often when we develop, we are developing over the water, and that is a challenge for the water bodies. Um, and because of that, those water bodies have lost more biodiversity than other types as well. But the really interesting thing is that wetlands, um, which include peatlands, they are always part of wetlands, it's a special type of ecosystem, but they actually hold more carbon in those water bodies are held, more is held there than in forests. There's almost two or three times the amount of carbon and methane and other greenhouse gases underneath our water bodies than there is in forests. And so when you re-wet those water bodies or, or restore rivers to their floodplains or construct wetlands, right, you can also create new wetlands, um, then you, it really quickly is easy to see how the biodiversity bounces back. There are awesome examples of that around the world, um, how they start to perform their normal functions within, you know, weeks. <laughs> if you can, if you restore a river or it's a lake, incredible. it's really amazing. And it's, it's super inspiring and it's, it's, um, it's incredible to see. And, and I don't know how it happens, but, you know, you can see like there's a constructed wetland here in Kenya and within days, you know, the flamingos found it and the, you know, the, the traveling um, uh, uh, sunbirds, which are kind of like little hummingbirds that are right outside my window here, they found that wetland. And so like they, these animals, they just find it. It's like they'll, they'll, they'll come and they'll find it. And then you find new species coming back. And um, we've seen that in, in the River Thames in London. We've seen that in the River Rhine in Germany. We see that in Argentina's wild parks. How these uh, the, the 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 Ganges has seen a type of river dolphin just come back, which had, hasn't been there for thirty years, right? So there's an amazing examples of of nature being able to bounce back, right? You know, uh, it's pretty powerful stuff. 
Well, it's just amazing how all it takes is a little bit of stewardship from us to like bring these ecosystems flourishing back with life. This is the kind of things that give me hope. It reminds me of my conversation about mangroves and how after a little bit of rewetting, he already started seeing the little baby mangroves like coming back. So yeah, it's it's just about creating incentives to get humans to want to do that kind of stuff. So is this the strategy is based around rewetting specific like ecosystems that have previously been degraded or, or, or what? Yeah, well, the the very best possible thing we can do is prevent them right, from right. being degraded in the first place. And so one new project we're starting, which I'm super excited about, it's um, I'll be in uh, the Congos later on in June. Um, and we've got a project we're starting with the International Climate Initiative. It's a collaboration between our freshwater unit, our, our peatlands unit, and our great apes unit. <laughs> and together we're working to protect the, the, the Congo peatlands, which to get, which is which is bigger than the, the country of England, right? So the peatlands, <laughs> the Congo basin peatlands are literally the lungs of Africa, almost as important as the Amazon for the world. We're trying to take measures to protect them so that when, when the Congos develop, that they are not doing so at the expense of those peatlands. And we're doing it also to protect the, the gorillas that are there um, and the freshwater supplies. And so that's the kind of project that really excites me. Um, it's amazing to be able to be part of that and to, and to see the impact of what we can do when we work together. So if the UN is technically not a government, it's not a company how are these projects being funded? Hmm. So the UN is, is our, our bosses are the 193 countries, which are the member states of the UN. So the right. UN is all of those countries together. Sometimes specific countries will give us funding to do specific things. Okay. So in the, in the environment space, it's the Nordic countries are big donors. Hmm. Germany, too. Also Japan. Um, the United States, a little bit. <laughs> Could be more. Um, but they'll often give us funding and say, we want you to work on a specific issue. So one topic right now that's really big is um, plastics and marine litter. And mm-hmm. so they'll, they, they might give us funding to say, work on that issue. That's what we want you to do. Um, for a lot of other work we do, we, we raise funds through, um, through projects like I just mentioned in the Congo. So that project is so big that it will allow us probably to hire one or two staff members that can do other work as well besides just that project. But those funds might come from the the Global Environment Fund, um, the Green Climate Fund, um, the International Climate Initiative. Those are our three biggest um, uh, donors, and they're global they're global funds that we we can apply for. Uh, we usually work because we work at the global level. Well, we usually work with an NGO that might be more at the local level. So we might partner with IUCN or the Nature Conservancy or WWF. Um, and, and together we might run then a project like that. Cool. Thanks for sharing. I'm always interested in how things are getting funded and how we can get more funding into stuff like what you do. That's kind of like my thing. Um, anyway, so would you mind sharing about the, uh, what the global adaptation network is and how you got involved with that project? Yeah, definitely. So the global adaptation network was, um, started in, in 2010 and it's hosted by UNEP, by the UN's environment program. And the idea with the Global Adaptation Network is kind of like what you were talking about uh, early on in this conversation, where, um, you know, there's so many great stories out there. There are technologies that are working. Some of them are very simple. You know, it might be um, when you build a house, you might just need to face it in a, a certain direction where the wind can cool it, for example. Or you might plant a certain kind of tree next to your house, and that might help with the water supply for the house. Um you know, it could be planting a certain kind of mangrove in a certain at, the, at a certain time of the year, um, and that might work in Argentina. And maybe, uh, maybe uh, you know, Indonesia needs to know about it. So the idea of the Global Adaptation Network was really to try to bring together those experts and those stories and the technologies that are working um, in order to share information and knowledge. So to to kind of create. Um, knowledge out of that information and to share it with the rest of the world so that they can take up more adaptation strategies. And a big, a big, a big issue that we have to deal with is this um, exactly this issue of, of funding. You mm-hmm. know, our, our aim is not to, 
to get money from big projects that it's, it stays with us at the UN, our aim is to facilitate that that money gets down to the countries and the people who need it. So we, we act as stewards to, to, to lead a project so that it gets down to the places where it's actually needed. And, and a lot more adaptation finance is needed. And we are, you know, millions or billions of dollars short of what we, where we need to be in terms of funding climate change adaptation. I agree. And I think, well, I believe that there is some sort of pricing mechanism that can be put into place to make adaptation projects or regeneration projects economically viable so they don't just rely purely on someone, someone's philanthropic donations, actually finding ways to get um, return on investment investors into the projects. And that's a recurring theme that I keep bringing up because I want to keep exploring it. I really believe we need to transform the, the economy into a regenerative economy finding some way to place monetary value. I don't know people might not like this, but to place monetary value on on life itself. So the more life we have, the more money we have, because what is money really used for, but to make sure that we all have a better life. And that should include okay. trees and insects and animals. And right now we're kind of sucking all the life out of them and turning them into Ferraris and stuff, which I'm, I'm not cool with, but this is a topic I'm really interested in. Yeah, You're absolutely right. And this question of valuing life, I mean, first you know, at, at its biggest extreme, climate change impacts can mean loss of human life, right? So right. How do you, first, you've got to value human life in the first place and then value that quality of life. And to do that, I think we've got to redefine what quality of life is. It's not that big house and that Ferrari. It's actually living next to a stream that's functional, right? <laughs> like, or, or, you know, a stream you can swim in or, or a lake you can drink out of. Or, you know, that's, that's that. I think we need to redefine that. And I honestly think, that many people are doing that. I think that if COVID taught us anything, for a lot of people, it taught us to get out into nature and appreciate what's close to home because you you, you couldn't go further than that, right? So um, I think we've seen really neat things happening. Um, but I absolutely agree. One of the problems with adaptation is that unlike mitigation, which is you know the like the carbon side. Right. With adaptation, we don't have clear numbers on it. We don't really know what it means to adapt. You know, the normal today will not be the normal of tomorrow. Um, and places that have never seen certain climate change impacts like fires or floods might see them tomorrow. And mitigation is really easy because we've got it's like a super clear mathematical you know, trajectory. It's like this is the amount of CO2 we're pumping out in the air. This is what we need to get it down to. This is how much temperature will rise if we put out another, you know, billion cubic liters of, of, of uh, carbon dioxide or methane. But adaptation has nothing like those kinds of metrics. Um, and, you know, and so that makes it really hard to measure and it makes it really hard to value when you can't measure it. Right. It's kind of like insurance. You've got to get people to pay for something that may or may not happen in the future. Um, so so it is it is tricky. But I really think that the area of nature based solutions is a win win in the adaptation space. Um, and that's because there's so many benefits that nature give, gives us. Right. So so nature can like mangroves, you mentioned when they're when you when you plant mangroves and when they're functional, they serve all sorts of adaptation benefits. They they stop they actually break waves so that they're not as high. Um, they help to to um, prevent sea level rise. They actually they help to keep uh, freshwater supplies in the ground, you know, underneath mangroves. They keep fish stocks healthy with the fish that breed in the mangroves. So there's all sorts of wonderful benefits of the mangroves that are, you know, they're also biodiversity hotspots, right? So we need to see nature as having all sorts of benefits for us, including recreation and aesthetic beauty and, you know, all these, you know, cleaning the air. This is all these, all these services that nature provide for us. And we should be investing in nature for all of those reasons. And one of them is also climate change adaptation and mitigation. So I think that's the way we need to think about it. The idea that nature is a wonderful thing. It literally supports our life and our quality of life. We need to invest in it and protect it. We need to put a value on it to do so. Um, and, and, um, and, you know, there will, there are other co-benefits to that, like the climate benefits. Yeah. I just would really love to see the co-benefits uh, valued on the market. 
And an interesting solution when I was talking to Miguel Cifuentes from Conservation International about mangroves is how if the mangroves came back that they would allow the shrimp the shrimp farmers to begin shrimp farming again. So something like that where I think I still think that's kind of a, a compromise as well because it's still like just selling a product. But I mean selling a product is great. And don't get me wrong, like I'm cool with Ferraris. I'm not a person who's like everyone should stop doing something i just think there's a better way of doing things i think it comes down to efficiency in many ways and having effective pricing mechanisms like the fact that carbon is just this thing that anyone can just release that and it just it just doesn't make sense really economically doesn't make sense because it doesn't value the the future life in 100 years so it's something i'm always kind of bubbling over on these friday podcasts but would you mind discussing some some of the um the largest adaptation issues you think that we're facing when it comes to specifically a, a warming planet or a changing climate? Sure. So, I mean, I think um, one of the biggest adaptation issues is is um, our, our coasts, our coastal regions. You know, something like um, 70% of the world's population lives within 100 well, kilometers, I guess, 60 miles of the coast. Um, and uh, and so the fact that the coasts are are really under kind of under siege, you know, they're, they're feeling the impacts of increased storms, right. That are coming in off the oceans and rising sea levels and higher waves. And so um, that those parts of the world, I think are, it's, it's something we have to, to really think about how we build at the coasts, who, you know, who should live there? Should we be talking about higher sea walls? Should we be talking about natural defenses like mangroves or coral reefs also break waves? Um, should we be talking about managed retreat so that we actually, you know, uh, sustainably and equitably help people move away out away from high risk areas? So, so the coastal regions is one one thing um, that we really should be talking about. Um, generally speaking, I mean, I work in the area of water, and most of the impacts of climate change are actually actually water impacts. You know, when when you think about what climate change means, it means more droughts and more floods. It means unpredictable rainfall. It means sometimes erratic and heavy precipitation. Um, it means uh, higher heat means less soil moisture, right? So there's all sorts of the impacts that we're, we're, we're seeing from climate change are on our freshwater supplies. And so there's no doubt that we urgently, especially with the growing world population, and changing food habits, which are more water intensive, you know, as some countries get richer, they they want that, uh, the red meat and the almond milk and all these things that, that we are telling people are a sign of wealth, they're super water intensive, right? So, so um, you know, we have to urgently be a lot more water efficient with our supplies because they will be under, you know, they'll be more threat under more threat. So we need to be better at storing water. Um, we need to be better at, uh, at sometimes just fixing our old aging infrastructure. We lose so much water through our old pipes. Sometimes 50% of water can be lost through um, through uh, leakages and pipes, right? So um, there's some things we can do immediately today. Uh, the way we grow our food, the kind of food we're growing in which parts of the world, um, the the you know, the, the agricultural practices, that the way we use water for our energy, um, fixing aging infrastructure, there's some things we should be doing anyway, because we should already li- be living now as if we're in a water scarce world. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought that adapting to stay alive would come to focusing on the foundation of all life? That's just something you'd never think of, right? Focusing on what gives us all life is going to make it more likely that we stay alive and managing this amazing resources gift that we have that we're 97% made out of. And I think... I think is it like it's a very high percentage of people that live on the coast as well in the world. It's like, a, are you aware of, of that offhand or no? Yeah, I think it's something like 70 percent of the world's population lives within 100 yeah. miles of the coast. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a really high number. And a lot of the world's major cities are at, at the coast, right, because of old transportation and shipping lanes and that kind sure. of thing. And then the coast is beautiful. Like, I understand. <laughs> like, it's, it's lovely to live at the coast. Well, not only is the coast is beautiful, but you kind of look out and you see this never-ending horizon. I mean, the coast 
is the only place where you can kind of see the world. I guess unless you live in Colorado, where you, the world start. You can actually see. For, sorry for the people who believe in flat Earth, but you can kind of see the world start to curve when you look out onto the ocean. That's what you begin to see. And the other interesting yeah. about that, when you have this amazing feeling when you look out on the ocean, I think you're connecting back to the beginning of life because all life began out in the water. I think that's a, a large reason why people have a tendency to live near the ocean. Um, it's really profound. Absolutely. It is it's it is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Can you tell me a bit about your experience with your podcast and some of the solutions te- and technologies for adapting to climate change that you uh, discuss with your guests? Yeah. So we had some really interesting um, discussions. One was with um, the head of the Global Center on Adaptation, Patrick Frekuyan. And he talked about, is <laughs> an amazing example, but he talked about um, living in the city of Rotterdam there, they're based in the Netherlands. And um, that because the Netherlands are literally low lying countries, right? It's, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's under the sea level. <laughs> so right. they have had to manage their water in amazing ways. They've got unbelievable um, examples of, of building dams and things that float and water that moves here and there. And his office is actually a floating office. So the whole building floats. It's all like out kind of like in the Rotterdam Harbor. Is there like a UN <laughs> office in Rotterdam as well, right? There is a bit of UN there. Yeah. And they're okay. an international organization. Um, but it was really cool, like how he's they're literally living in an adaptation world and he bikes to work every day. And, you know, like I, I really enjoyed talking to him. Um, I also had a really great time. There's a um, uh, an amazing architect working in New York City. And he was talking about, you know, New York and New Jersey and and, and other parts around New York. They they've suffered really badly from some of the impacts of like, Hurricane Sandy was quite famous, but other I was there. storms that have come through. Were you there in it New was, Jersey was, at the time? I lived there. Oh, it was great. We had no power for two weeks. That's that's kind of cool. <laughs> and you'll always remember it, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was what it was. And then the next year we got hit by this monster snowstorm in like, I think yeah. November that like took out power I, for like a week and a half as well. I remember like Snowmageddon. Yeah. yeah. And we, we moved to New York at the end of 2014. And I remember that first winter we were there, like January 2015, they were afraid it was going to be this crazy big snowstorm and so they like battened down all the hatches and declared this tri-state emergency and everyone had to stay home and then it wasn't it ended up not being much i think i remember that too it was kind of funny um uh but what's really cool like cities like hoboken um excuse me if i'm saying that really wrong but um hoboken (laughs) i knew a new jersey guy would be able to correct me i got you Um, They've like some cities really learned to rebuild their parks or in in really neat green infrastructure ways after Hurricane Sandy so that they actually rebuilt in a way that allowed them to be flooded if needed. Right. So because river river levels can rise and sea levels can rise, there's lots of green spaces around now that haven't been rebuilt with um, with concrete and cement and gray infrastructure, but rather kept green and they can be used as a skate park or a green park when everything is great, but if it does flood, it, it can flood um, and absorb that water and easily and then go back to its normal state afterwards. So I love this idea um, of, of, of letting a city be a green city where it can actually, you know, you've got permeable pavements and you've got green rooftops and right, you, you, you really let the, the, the water soak in and you let the city live with that. And New York's actually a pretty amazing example of, of doing that quite well. It's New York and its region. Cool. So where can people find the show? Oh, so I can, uh, the, the global adaptation networks podcast is called resilient. Um, and it's on Spotify and iTunes and, uh, and audible. And it's also on UNEP's website. It's available for free. Um, in all those places. Um, so if you go to www.unep.org slash adaptation, uh, you'll find you'll find us right there. Yeah, and in the link of this podcast as well. So very, very cool. That definitely be something people should check out if they're interested in that kind of stuff. Um, how responsible do you think developed nations are for helping to bolster climate adaptation in specifically developing nations around the world? Not, not usually a topic I bring up, but with you, I'd definitely love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, first of all, developed countries, the rich countries of the world are 
responsible for climate change, first of all. So that's one thing. Like they're, Good point. they're first of all responsible that we need to adapt because the way we have adapted is is not a way that's been sustainable or good for the planet you know we pumped all sorts of things out starting like in the 1870s or 80s in countries like england um you know the industrial revolution started started everything really badly so we we are responsible for what the impacts that we're seeing today um there are some countries that feel that responsibility and and are paying for poorer countries to adapt or to develop in a more sustainable way than we did it because we can't afford to let the Chinas and, you know, the African countries of this world adapt or develop themselves in the same way we did it over the past 70 years. If we did that, we'd literally all be screwed. So we have to find greener pathways and more sustainable ways to adapt, to develop. Um, So there are countries that are putting more money into adaptation. It's not enough. The balance is nowhere near enough. It's still something like 70 or 80% of all climate finance goes to the mitigation side um, or uh, rather than the adaptation side. So we need to, we need to get parity at least, and we need to put a lot more money to adaptation. Um, There are some trends that we're seeing countries like uh, especially European countries that are giving more and more money, more and more money to Africa to adapt um, there's a great initiative called the Great Green Wall Initiative, which is all 12 countries across Africa are literally building a green wall of trees across the entire continent. I think some of the reason that Europe is investing a lot of money in that is because they, to be honest with you, they kind of want to stop the flow of migrants that has come up to Europe. They want people to be able to um, live and live well where they are instead of trying to move somewhere else to, to live in other places. So I think some of the funds that we're seeing going towards adaptation are because of this climate security issue, because of this migration issue. But I mean, more and more is needed, that's for sure. Definitely. What have you found is the most effective way to mobilize support around a particular project throughout your career? I think that it all depends. I mean, I think it depends on how you sell it. Um, and it depends on the donor that you're reaching out to. Yeah. And, and you mentioned some of the, um, some of the incentives, I think you have to understand what people care about the particular partner that you're talking to, whether it's a company or a specific government or a donor country, you need to understand what their top priority is. So if I were going to Germany, for example, it might be talking about climate security. And so you'd need to talk about the co-benefits for migration or for livelihoods or for jobs in the adaptation space um, as an incentive for them to also fund that project. So that's one thing that um, I always recommend. You need to look at all of the benefits and look at the bigger picture. Um, You mentioned the idea of needing to find economic incentives for people to invest in nature Mm -hmm. and i think the reality is that people do need jobs you know so there's a there's an amazing um a really cool project on the kenyan coast one of the last indigenous forests in 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 kenya at least okay and the project helps to pay for beekeepers right so it's protecting the forest and it has butterfly farmers like people who literally grow um, cocoons and larvae of butterflies and sell those, right? Or beekeepers who then sell their honey. Um, It's incentivizing them to keep the forest functional so that they will have jobs in those fields. And then it helps to ensure that people have those jobs. And I think when people, when their livelihood depends on it, the, 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 you know, getting food on your family's table depends on it, then you will protect that forest. And that's, it's a great example of people making money off of something because they need to, but understanding that there's more value if that forest is standing than if it's cut down. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. I have to think about that a bit more. Um, there's a lot of people and a lot of people need jobs. So it's a tricky, it's a tricky topic. I am really curious. You've lived around the world. It sounds like a, a lot of your life in all sorts of different countries. I'm wondering what you've learned most from your travels or from your time spent, you know, integrating with other cultures in other countries. Yeah. I mean, I think um, 
it's been incredibly enriching for myself and for my family to be able to to see different countries and cultures. And I think it it's really cliche, but it's it's true that when you start to get to know people in places around the world, that you realize that we're all really pretty much the same. I mean, humans like humans everywhere are the same. I mean, we we want, you know, you want to feel safe, you want economic security, you want a better life for your kids than you had for yourself. You want to be recognized, you know, <laughs> you know, you want to be successful for whatever that means. And I think the more you get to know people, the more you realize that um, you know, people are maybe speaking different languages, might look different, might be wearing different clothes, might have different cultural backgrounds, but 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 people really are understandable when you meet them face to face. One thing that's really surprised me in a very amazingly positive way is that in a place like Kenya, where you think, okay, the, the education levels often are not very high. People here, most of them have never left their country or maybe even never left the city of Nairobi. But if I take an Uber here and I start talking to the Uber driver as we drive around, he is likely to mention something about climate change, right? So that guy who's a part-time hair cutter in his free time and then drives this Uber and, and literally has never been anywhere except for his neighborhood, he understands and knows what climate change is, right? So he'll, he'll say, yeah, the rains are late, it's climate change, you know, or, you know, the, the, the cabbages haven't been growing as well and we see that it's the impact of climate change. And that's incredible that 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 level of knowledge and interest is 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 so much more widespread than I think people give credit for. Well, it's almost like really relevant because it affects like the whole future of our entire lives. And if someone's lived in Nairobi for 40 years and they're working and they're seeing things change slowly over time to the point where now it's kind of undeniable, it's something you're you're going to pick up on and then you see the headlines about climate change. I don't think it's really the the mitigation, the adaptation, the how do we fix it is a social problem, it's a scientific problem, but understanding the uh, the the greenhouse effect I think is really not that difficult. I always remember this picture from my science textbook where there's arrows from the sun going into a greenhouse and then the arrows yeah. hit the, the top of the roof and then come back down so the heat gets trapped i think it's really simple for anyone to understand when you have like steam in a room it gets like warmer so I, yeah. anyway, anyways also i wanted to comment that if you say that something's cliche it probably means that there's some profound wisdom behind it because so many people have been saying it for many years yeah and so something's it's corny or yeah, well, I keep I keep saying that a lot on the show because I think people like kind of brush over things they've heard a million times. But there's a reason why everyone's saying that is what something I'd like to say. Um, how have you seen to give people some hope? How have you seen the, the emphasis on environmental issues change uh, throughout your career over the last 10, 15 years? Honestly, I think so. The, the reason we did the, po the podcast that we did is is precisely to find those stories of, of hope and to share them and to give people um you know, the idea of a good future that's that's worth fighting and living for. And I honestly feel, I think that when, you know, I've, I've been seeing the climate change conferences happen for the last 20 years, and I've been seeing those reports that we at the UN put out every year, and every year they're more dire and they're worse and worse, right? So there are always bad news. And we love to send, or we always have used to love to send out, um, you know, pictures of like scorched earth and whatever dried up lakes and rivers and, you know, dead baby seals or whatever we do to shock people into action. Right. So, you know, look at this. It's horrible. It's really scary. You've got to act now. We have to act now. But that really doesn't work. People don't like to have the crap scared out of them again and again. In fact, what happens is that people just sort of shut down and stop acting there. If you, if you, if you don't give people any hope and you think that this is like the, you know, the, the future world is a dystopia, right? Then um, you can't expect people to act. They don't know what to do, and it, the problems seem too big, and they're they're you know they're not my problem, and it's other people that are causing the issue. And what you have to do is give people bite-sized bits of information that they can act on, and simple things. And that's one of the things that I think we really saw kind of a a, a change with the with the movie with the inconvenient truth. Um, I mean, you had Al Gore with all these horrible projections and big numbers and statistics and all the scientific googly-gook. And at the end of it, he said, this is what you can do right now. Switch out your light bulbs, walk up the stairs wherever you can, 
leave your car parked in the driveway or don't have one, right? Switch to this kind of food. Mushrooms are also delicious. Eat, you know, have a nice mushroom risotto instead of that steak. But there's 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 things that you can do that do make a difference, and and it are still a life that's a really wonderful life worth living because it's amazing to go out and walk to work. Or better, arguably. You know, it's better. It makes you feel awesome, and you'll it you'll you know you'll be healthier and feel better and you know like need less therapy and whatever like there's so many great reasons <laughs> um but i think we have to really change that narrative and 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 change what it means that to have a good life and what we're striving for um and we can do that in a way that's also happens to be a lot more sustainable yeah excellent point um i hardly drive unless it's it's for work but i used to drive every day to the gym and i just recently switched gyms and now my gym is just like right down the street and i've been like cycling over and i've been like loving and having such a great time and i didn't realize how much i really didn't like driving until like recently when i haven't been driving at all i had to drive to denver yesterday and I was like, oh, this is so lame. Like, I, you know, I also live in Boulder, Colorado, where I get to look at the mountains and it's sunny out. But still, like cycling around is is, is really fun for me. Anyways, Liz, it's, it's been really. Yeah. yeah, it's been really great having you on the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time doing a little broad discussion with me on these these complex topics. I think it's really interesting um, and necessary to keep the the dialogue going with anyone who's willing to listen. So thank you for taking the time. Do you have any final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about building a better world? Absolutely. Um, I think that there's so many opportunities for young people to get involved in um, sustainable efforts. And whether that's with an organization like the UN or with the Nature Conservancy or, or with Google or a, a realtor firm, you, whatever you do, you can do it in a sustainable way. And I have tremendous hope for our future when I see and get to meet young people and see how passionate they are. I know that young people are going to go into the future, go into their studies and careers with a totally different mindset than we had 20 or 30 years ago. And that gives me lots of hope. And uh, I would just say, you know, don't, don't give up, you know, keep, keep fighting for that, for that great future that I, I know we will have. Yeah. I think, I think that's fantastic. So Liz, I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Ethan, great to meet you. Thank you. You got it. All right, everybody, and we'll see you. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.